I would show the parent their son's data, and then I would cover up the names of the other players and say, look, this is where his son matches up. He's the sixth outfielder as far as distance, throws, and speed. So therefore, he's a he's not starting. There's only three outfielders. And once you show them the data, it, it kind of makes sense to them. And, you know, he goes through the drills. He, he's just very quiet and unassuming. And then you look at that data and it's like, wow, he's just as good as that other kid. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the High School Coaches Club. I'm your host, Max Price. We are closing in on 50 episodes. Really hard to believe, but it's all because of you. Uh, the messages, the tweets, the text. You're the reason the club exists. And I just can't stress how special this community has become and how much it means to me personally. So thank you for being a part of it. I do have an ask right here at the top of our hour together, though, and that's for you to leave a rating, uh, maybe even a review if you feel super inclined to do so. Uh, And that's if you're tuning in on Apple. Um, Thanks again for joining me. And a huge thank you to Will and the gang over at Netting Pros for sponsoring the High School Coaches Club. In addition to the design aspect of facility improvement, Netting Professionalized specialized in the fabrication and installation of custom netting, digital graphic wall padding, windscreen turf, turf protectors, benches, cubbies, and so much more. Obviously, baseball and softball are huge markets for Netting Pros, but they have customers in pretty much any sport you can possibly imagine. From football to soccer to lacrosse to golf courses to track and field, you name it, they do it. They are truly making facilities better all across the country, providing high-quality products and services to recreational college professional and, of course, high school facilities, fields, courses, and stadiums. You can contact them today by calling 844-620-2707, emailing info at nettingpros.com, visiting their website, nettingpros.com, or by checking them out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. And they're improving programs one facility at a time. They're also doing something incredibly unique right now, and that's a coach's book club via Twitter. I've never heard of this before, but it's just crazy enough that I think it's going to work. I'm really into it. Will Miner gave out a ton of copies of Chase the Lion by Mark Batterson. And the book club is now on. It's too late to win your own copy from Will, but you can purchase one and join the book club anyway. Follow Netting Pros Chat on Twitter to join the fun. This podcast is also sponsored by Driveline Plus. High school coaching is about effectively identifying and communicating what athletes need to do to improve. Driveline Plus is a growing and ever-changing library of the best information on baseball player development. Members will find how-tos on different baseball technology and the latest research findings from Driveline's lab, along with inside access to Driveline trainers to make sure you can effectively coach your team. Plus, members also get the best discounts that you can find on Driveline training gear. Listeners of this podcast right here can get $25 off their first year of Driveline Plus using the coupon code HSCC. That's the letters HSCC, High School Coaches Club. You guessed it. For $25 off your first year of Driveline Plus, go to drivelinebaseball.com slash plus to learn more. You can also find the link down in the show notes. This episode features Ron Kretz. He spent 24 years as a teacher and coach and is now in a new role as an assistant principal. He shares some of the successes and learning moments he had as a coach, how he helped build programs, and what he now does to help support coaches. It's a good one, and I'm excited for you to learn with me. So let's do it. Let's dive in. It's episode 48 with Ron Kretz. All right, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me, Ron. Hey, glad to be here, sir. 
yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I know last week we tried to record an episode and then uh, technology failed us on my end. And, and so thank you for the patience and uh, excited to finally get you on here. I am excited to share baseball experience with you. <laughs> Before we dive in, I, I upon doing some digging and stuff, I saw that you play a little bit of electric guitar. How long have you been doing that? Oh, wow. I've been up since I was 12. I was I started oh, really? off in the church choir. And, uh, you know, you get to middle school at that time. It was Motley Crue and White uh, White Riot and uh, formed a little band named Shattered Steel. <laughs> and, uh, we stayed together all the way up to our senior year and then we all went our different ways. It was good times, though. That's hilarious. Yeah. Shattered steel. I love it. Um, yeah. So we're, you know, obviously we'll, we'll get deep into to baseball and everything and, and your career as a coach, but uh, I wanted to really go back and start at, with your high school days in the, in the middle of the shattered steel days. Um, mm-hmm. So you kind of take me back to high school. Where'd you go? Uh, what sports were you involved in? What was your experience like? Well, uh, shattered steel was uh, a Saturday thing to do, but uh, my experience was, uh, you know, making good grades in high school. And I uh, lettered in football, basketball, baseball, and uh, just did those sports. Uh, I excelled in, in all of them. Uh, we were a, uh, a mid-sized Texas high school. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we just competed, had good old country fun out there. And then from there, obviously, you 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 got in the college ranks back at uh, even before Texas A and M was called Texas A and M. Well, it was actually uh, I went to Ranger Junior College, and my claim to fame there is uh, Ellis Burks, who played for the rest, uh, Red Sox, was a graduate there, mm-hmm. and uh, he drove up in for a fall scrimmage, and you know I was able to pitch to him one at bat. He got him to ground out the third, so that was my claim to fame there. Um, <laughs> And then from there, I went to, uh, it wasn't Texas A&M College Station. It was actually Texas A&M Kingsville. Uh, it's one of the uh, uh, the sister schools of the A&M system. And uh, there are the Javelinas. And, uh, you know, it started off with a club that, uh, it was a club baseball program. And the, the president uh, gave us some money. And we traveled to some local colleges to play. And then the year I graduated is when they went full-fledged uh, NCAA Division one, I mean, sorry, NCAA Division one, level two. So, uh, you know, it was just a, a startup program and we had some good fun there as well. That's awesome. Did you at the time know that coaching is something that you wanted to get into? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've been wanting to be a coach since I was 16. I was uh, <laughs> having success in high school baseball. I loved it. My brothers were younger and uh, there was a shortage of, uh, coaches for the senior league and uh my brother his his team didn't have a coach and they were going to disband the team and and i just told my mom or asked my mom rather if uh she could sign the papers as being the coach and i'll take care of everything else so <laughs> there we were i was 16 my brother was uh, 13 i was coaching his team and uh my mom was the uh coach on paper but i did all the dirty work and, and we had a great time and uh, it was a good experience for us yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. I've heard a lot of different unique stories. That one's that one's probably pretty up there. At sixteen, becoming a coach. Obviously, your mom's the coach, but you're really you're the one actually doing the coaching. Yeah, it's just and it was kind of weird because I'm about the you know I'm a, a sophomore, junior in high uh, high school, and these kids are seventh, eighth grade, and you know it's uh it, it was they still respected me because you know the way I carried myself, et cetera, and we and we had fun and we just had a good time. 
That sort of things, to, you know, when a lot of times we'll you get a young assistant, like volunteer coach or somebody who's maybe like even in college still. So maybe like 2021. 20, and, you know, as a high school coach, you've got kids who are 17 and 18 years old. And so there's always this kind of this very small gap between the ages. And that can sometimes, you know, be problematic for some kids because it's hard to separate yourself from being a kid. And then I think to you at, at 16, how much more difficult that would even be because, you know, obviously as a 16 year old, theoretically, you're less mature than we would be at 20. Oh yeah, without a doubt. But uh, my selling point is, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to help the Los Fresnos high school program. I figured uh, these kids will be playing baseball with me in high school in a year or two. So for my senior year, mm-hmm. you know, if they're of uh, high caliber, you know, they may be on the varsity as a freshman and they, they may be very well my, be my teammates. Uh, but the exciting part of this whole thing is when my brother was a junior and a senior, that group of kids, uh, not just on my team, but in that little, that year spanned, they all went uh, three deep in the playoffs for Los Fresnos High School for the first time in years. So, uh, you know, that's my uh, little, you know, legacy left there is my, my brother's team, you know, had a, had a good calling and they had a, a good baseball coach in Cavazos and uh, they, had a, they had a good run there. That's awesome. That's fantastic. So uh, anyway, yeah, fast forwarding back, I just had to take that side road uh, back into college. Then you're, you're, you know, obviously graduating and getting into, um, you know, the first year of, of 24 years as a teacher and coach. And so uh, kind of take us back to that first stop. Where did you go and, and how did you get that job? Well, um, the first stop was Raymondville, Texas. It's uh, down near the coast. And uh Right out of college, I, I wanted to be a head baseball coach because it's it's in my blood, and that's what I love to do, and I want to share what I had. Um, and you know, Raymondville High School uh, it was a small community, and you know, not too many people applied for that job. And now, as a veteran coach, I know why. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I took the job sight unseen. I didn't know what I was getting into. I just know that I was a twenty uh, one year old with as a head baseball coach in Texas. And I was excited as I'll get out. Well, when my wife and I moved into town, we realized that um, their baseball field was little more than a uh, a PE backstop with little league dugouts, hmm. and it was overgrown grass everywhere. It had no outfield fence. The first base perimeter fence had barbed wire on it because that led into the campus, and uh, it was. Uh, it was, it was an opportunity for me to get my feet wet, but you know, some places just don't want to change. And no matter how hard I tried or tried to get things going, it, it was a, it was a difficult task, but uh, we, you know, we won some games there, nothing spectacular, but uh, it was a good experience for me. That's something I've heard from a handful of coaches too, is that, you know, a lot of us, especially when we're young, we, we want to dive in and be a head coach. And so we take a job and sometimes we don't like take a step back and think why, you know, a more experienced coach who's been around for a long time, isn't getting that job, or even as we would probably later find out, even applying for that job. And we get, you know, we're, we're excited to take something over, but then on the flip side of that, what you kind of finish with there is that sometimes maybe even though we took that job and even though it, maybe it was a mistake when we kind of can get to the end of our career and look back, maybe that's what you had to go through at the time to become a successful coach, like later in your career, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you realize one, you don't know everything that you think, you know, two, yeah. you start coaching high school kids. It's, it's not just baseball. It's, it's, 
academics. They got to pass all their classes. It's uh, classroom discipline. It's the uh, physical forms. It's the training forms. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, you know, all that stuff. Uh, I'm uh, very well organized. That wasn't the problem is just trying to get the kids to believe that we can win. And, you know, it's just, uh, it was a very challenging situation, learned from it and uh, chalked it up. And, uh, you know, after three years, I figured if, uh, you know, I ain't changing this place, I better move on or, you know, my, my career is going to be shot. So uh, is that when I, you ended up at, at Rio Hondo? No, actually uh, from Raymondville, I got an assistant job at Harlingen South High School. It was oh, a yeah, brand that's new, right. It was a brand new school. Uh, had just opened up two years prior, mm. and uh, their head baseball coach was Edward Hody Garcia. Uh, he had won a state championship at Victoria Stroman in 87. And uh, working with him was, was the best thing that could ever happen to me in my career. Uh, so I went from the worst part of my career to the best part. And working with him, uh, he, he taught me a lot about coaching, about the, the mental side, about the discipline, you know, just, just a total program in itself. Uh, and he uh, he approached baseball the way football coaches approach football. I mean, he, he was a tough disciplinarian, and the kids performed well. And uh, every day it was like uh, learning something new for me. It was uh, I kept the journal and, and just documented everything we did on a daily basis and, uh, you know, tried to replicate that, the, the you know, the places I went after that. When you were there, how much – kind of uh, freedom or responsibility did coach give you? Well, honestly, um, he, he threw me right in there. I mean, he, uh, he, he and I had a, a talk, you know, when I interviewed and uh, he knew what I wanted and, and he was able to share with me. He always used to tell me, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know, but not everything that I know. And I was <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, I was just absorbing everything. And, he, he allowed me my first year and I was coaching third base. I was, uh, you know, d- doing all the things the assistant coaches do. Uh, he, he still made the lineup and he organized the practices. He always asked for my input. Uh, as a young coach, I did all the fungo, save his back a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, man, it, it was just a uh, worthy experience. And uh, we had a good run. And it's just great memories. And uh, without him... And the experiences I had there for three years, I don't think I would have been as successful as I was. Well, yeah, it's it's a cool path. I've, I've heard a couple coaches take similar paths where they become a head coach of a program. Um, like you're mentioning, like Raymondville wasn't maybe quite ready to to leap into the successful ranks of maybe a high school program yet. And then kind of take a step back, go in as an assistant somewhere really successful. And then from there, kind of like a launching point to uh, a job that's probably better than the, the Raymondville job that you originally started out with. Oh, yeah. Uh, from uh, Harlingen South, I, I stayed there. And besides baseball, I moved up in the coaching ranks as a football coach because I mm-hmm. later became the, the quarterback coach there. So because uh, in, in Texas, you can't coach baseball unless you coach football, basically. Yeah, that's so, what I've heard. Yeah, some, uh, some people you, tell You better me. take care of both jobs. So uh, <laughs> from there, I took off uh, to Rio Hondo High School, and that's a, a rural community here in the Rio Grande Valley in South deep South Texas. Had about 700 students, and, uh, you know, I was going to be the offensive coordinator and head baseball coach. So I had the best of both worlds there. 
And uh, the strange thing there is the head coach at that time, David Robledo, uh, he just gave me a call on a Sunday afternoon. I've never met the man, didn't know him, but the uh, head football coach at Harlingen South recommended me to him. And uh, we talked on Saturday and on Monday, went to meet the principal and I was hired Monday afternoon. <laughs> wow. Uh, it was uh, it, it was a nice little uh, lift me up. Uh, my wife and I were excited. But, you know, there's a little uh, there's a drawbridge going into that little community. And uh, I actually had second guesses when I crossed that drawbridge to sign my contract. It's like, OK, what am I doing? You know, it's it's a little uh, rural community. They farm, they ranch. You know, the school and the feed store and the restaurants. That I mean, that's the that's the economy in town. Mm. And uh, it's like wow. But you know, I took the opportunity, and uh, baseball was terrible. But they had averaged like three or four wins a year. And again, here I go taking another small town job that doesn't have anything. But, uh, you know, you're young and you feel like you can change the world. Yeah. You know, yeah. like uh, I'm the one that I can I, I can do this. Uh, and on top of that, I was the offensive coordinator. So that, that helped as well. Uh, it paid well. And there we go. And uh, the first year we went 10 and 10. And that was the first non-losing season that schools had. Uh, and I, I just hit it just right because – when we got there, they were building a brand new sports complex. So we went from a small rural, you know, where the, the farmer next door used to cut our grass, et cetera, to a, a really nice football, baseball, softball uh, complex. And, uh, you know, the timing was just right. And with that new field, uh, the kids were excited. Parents were pumped. We had opening ceremonies and all that good stuff. Started a little league, little league program that's still going on today. And uh, my second year, we won over 20 games and made the playoffs. And, uh, you know, it was a really nice experience. And we still continue success for the next couple of years. And uh, Real Hondo is still winning today. Yeah, that's what that's one of the really cool things I think is that um, you, you know you took over a program that hadn't. You even mentioned they hadn't won, uh, had a winning season ever. And yeah. a couple of the things you mentioned are two of the. I don't know. I think two of the better things that you can do as a program. One is if you happen to have a, a an administration or school that's willing to uh, give a better field, obviously, than like your first school where you have like barbed wire fencing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but then yeah. the second one, which you mentioned, is is creating a little league or creating some sort of youth program um, yeah. to go along with the school. Because I mean, you know, as a as a head coach of a program, if there's no youth program in the area, then you know what what kind of kids are going to be showing up to your program when they get to high school. And so the creation of a youth program is awesome. So can you kind of take me through you, you take over real Hondo's head coach, you're crossing the drawbridge, you're coming to town. You mentioned having second guesses as you're going to sign your contract and then, okay, we sign it. We're hired. What's your, as the baseball coach, what's your first step? Like what are you doing as soon as you're hired? Uh, well, besides doing inventory, checking equipment, et cetera, like that. I mean, it, it was, mm -hmm. it was bare bones, it was, it was, it was ugly. I mean, my expectations are always high, but, uh, and once you do that, I started, uh, meeting people in the community. Uh, you know, we have the preseason football meeting and I was on the side talking baseball to whoever wanted to listen to me. And <laughs> you, you just start meeting the dads, you know, uh, you know, this is the middle linebacker. 
you meet the dad and, oh, yeah, and uh, my son, he also plays catcher. Oh, really? Let's talk about playing catcher, mm. you know, <laughs> and, and just continued. And uh, before I know it, we started uh, – it was a really small school, but we had a booster club. But on the on the side, although I was always throwing in baseball somewhere. And we finally, roundabout way, got to a, a dad who was actually taking a group of boys to a neighboring city to play baseball. And then once we got a hold of him – we were able to get more kids involved to make them aware, hey, you know, you can drive 20 miles with this family or with your parents and, and you can get involved in baseball, become a better player. And that's where it all started. Uh, even uh, today in Rio Hondo, the kids still drive to this neighboring city to play, but there's just so many more teams. Uh, and now what we started before I left Rio Hondo is we used to have opening ceremonies on the high school field. And it was a really neat community event, you know, a small community, everybody comes out. And we started off with maybe three or four teams. And by the time I left, we had almost nine to 10 teams out there on the field. Mm-hmm. So uh, it grew, uh, not only the Little League baseball grew, but uh, football grew, then soccer took off and then Little League basketball. And, you know, and I'll say a lot of this has to do with the uh, school board and their vision as a community. Uh, they opened up all the facilities all year long for anybody who wanted to use it. And uh, that was a huge thing for that community. And they're successful in boys and girls sports all across the board. Yeah, that's awesome. And that last point you made, I think, is so important because um, I, I've, I've heard this from coaches, too, that um, administrations and school boards will, in addition to assistant coaches, uh, will kind of make and break the the kind of the, the ceiling of your program and how high it can be. So, you know, a lot, a lot of guys and, and gals end up in positions where um, administrations and school boards almost seem to be like working against sports or against, you know, improving sports. And man, you mentioned just allowing them to open up the facilities and, and let youth programs in. It's, it's such a blessing because mm-hmm. all of a sudden as a youth coach, you're not trying to find places to play. It's, I mean, everything just becomes so much easier. And then on the flip side of that, when you're, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old and you're, you're representing Rio Hondo, then when, of, of course, when you get to high school, like you're super excited to put on that Rio Hondo jersey by then. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it's just a good thing for the entire community because it, it, it gives the kids something to do. You know, yeah, they'd be working, you know, in, in the cotton gin or they'd be on the tractor with the dad or baling hay, but they always found an hour or two to get to the field house and get to the field and get some work in. It's a, it's, it's a good little thing. It's a good little story. And it was a great experience. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. And turning that program around. And then obviously, yeah. like you mentioned, the little league's still going strong. So that's kind of a cool, you know, legacy to leave behind that as Rio Hondo continues success, you can kind of look back at that. Um, and so then from Rio Hondo, you end up going back somewhere pretty familiar, right? Yeah, I went back to the, to the sister school, uh, went back to Harlingen. The, these are all within uh, 15, 20 minute drives of each other. Uh, Harlingen is a, in Texas, a six, a 6A school, which is the largest division we have has over 3000 students. And, uh, you know, I, I've always been coaching football and baseball. I've always loved baseball, but football pays the bills in Texas. So uh, I got the chance to be a head baseball coach and Harlingen was a football powerhouse. I mean, they had gone like 20 years of consecutive playoff appearances and, uh, uh, in, in football, but in baseball, it, it comes and it goes. But, uh, you know, I was just excited to to get over there, 6A school. I thought I had made it. 
Um, but everything was football related. Everything. Uh, the baseball practice field, I thought I went back to real, uh, I'm sorry, back to Raymondville. We had a little league backstop on campus and our batting tunnel was chain link fenced. And that used to tear up our baseballs like crazy. Um, but the good thing was we played in a, uh, minor league baseball field in town. So for the, uh, Harlingen white wings was a, uh, minor league independent uh, league field owned by the city. And it, it was a, it was a great facility to play in. And we got to practice there once a week, had to, you know, drive the bus over there, et cetera. But uh, another positive thing is my timing was impeccable is that when I got the Harlingen, they were already designing a brand new baseball softball complex. <laughs> so I, I was, uh, timing was good. I was able to put my two cents in there again. Uh, and, you know, at Harlingen, my thing there was just feeding off the football program, telling the kids that football can win, baseball can win. And we had a baseball class of close to 60 kids. Uh, of course, uh, some of really good caliber players and, and some that needed a lot of work. It was a good mixture. But uh, that team in Harlingen finished last the year before. And through a, a good off season, really supportive dads that would uh, support what I said and did, and uh, cr- helped us create a fall league for our kids. We were able to uh, become district champs in my first year there, and we had two, a lefty and a righty on the mound. They both went to college, and their development that fall as pitchers was tremendous. And uh, you know, we could we scored two runs a game. I knew that we were going to win the game because those two pitchers were going to take care of business. And without those two, you know, I was telling everybody without uh, with without Cody and Matt pitching, you know, we're not as successful. But uh, you know, everybody knows if you don't have pitching, you don't you're really not going to be that good. But uh, those yeah, two yeah, guys no are, are piece of success. Especially when you get to to playoffs and things like that, man. If you if you don't have pitching, it's going to be a rough go of it. Yep. But uh, those two guys <laughs> were solid, lefty righty. Um, and it was just a good combination. And I had a, a little kid, uh, Eddie guy, Tom would step in every now and then and short relief. And, uh, you know, we made memories there. So when you, when you were heading over there to take over that program, did you know before you were hired that they were planning on, on, you know, creating a new complex there as well? Or is that just like a happy, happy coincidence that you, you happened upon after you signed a contract? It was, it was just a coincidence, you know, a, a no yeah, at, at Rio Hondo, I didn't know what was going on. At Harlingen, I didn't know what was going on. Uh, you know, well, they talked about it like all other schools, but they talk about it and goes to the back burners. They talk about it and they spend their money elsewhere. And, you know, when I got there, it was, uh, hey, we're talking about building a baseball field. And the head football coach said, don't hold your breath. You know how it goes. And it's okay, whatever. And then finally one day they they hey, they put stakes out at the field, and I drove out there and sure enough they had stakes out there. And I said, okay, we're we're onto something. The uh, the weird thing about it is Harlingen spent a lot of money just making a practice field, and the uh, parents weren't too happy about that. They wanted their own game field, mm. and uh, parents have a lot of. Uh, voting power and they, they finally got a hold of certain people and they actually tore down the brand new project, tore it down from scratch, tore up the entire field. And then they built a brand new legit high school baseball, softball complex. 
uh, has uh, covered batting tunnels. Uh, both softball and baseball both have a practice infield. Uh, everything is uh, underground water system, automatic lights. I mean, the, the second time around, they did it right. And uh, I had a whole lot more input the second time around. And, uh, you know, we asked for four tunnels and we got two. So, you know, it, it was a good thing for us. <laughs> yeah, man, that's awesome. What a what a gift to, to have uh, parents being willing to step up and use that voting power to to get something that they need. That's one thing that you mentioned yeah. a couple of times, you know, going back to like Rio Hondo, when you're talking about, um, you know, the parents and trying to help kind mm-hmm. of build that youth program, um, you know, parents, obviously among a lot of coaching inner circles, they get a lot of flack. Um, there's a lot of mm-hmm. horror stories that I think every coach has, obviously um, we all do, but um, by and large, I think parents can be a really valuable partner and it sounds like during your time as a coach there's there's been some times that you could specifically point to where parents really helped the program out a ton yeah you know you read books by bobby knight and and bobby knight you know he he hated booster clubs because his thing was why do you want to organize the enemy and uh (laughs) but and yes there are there are some stories and i i got some as well you know you don't order i have one story you know there's a a sophomore who i didn't think was going to make varsity so I didn't order him game shoes. Well, one kid injures, one one kid has an injury, the other one transfers, and this sophomore's got to play varsity, but I don't have shoes for him. And hmm. you, you would have thought that I had, you know, done something terrible. I mean, it, that sucker went to the principal and everybody else, and you know, we got him his shoes. But the fact that he didn't have his shoes on that game day at that time, and is like, oh my gosh, you know, it's just, <laughs> it, it's crazy. But you're right. Uh, par- parents are supportive and, um, you know, as, as long as they know their, their boundaries and perimeters, uh, we're never going to openly discuss playing time. I'm not going to discuss playing time unless the son is with me. Uh, those are just not topics. We can talk about the program. We can talk about how we can raise some money. We can talk about restaurants and eating arrangements and travel arrangements, t-shirts, uh, travel bags, you know, all that team related items. But anything about playing time, et cetera, that's that's not that's not negotiable. That that's up to me and my assistants. That's something that I I adopted, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago because I had a couple parents that had come to me, you know, separately, separate issues, separate kids, wanting to talk about playing time. And the first thing I did after they kind of emailed me about it, wanting to meet, is like the next day I went and asked their son about it. Um, you know, one of my players and he had no idea that they had reached out uh, and they were mm-hmm. both of them equally kind of mortified by it because in their mind, things were fine. And it was more of a parent thing where they were watching the games and their kid wasn't playing as much as they sh- they thought he should be. Uh, but the kid was fine and he was totally fine with it. And so that's something I've actually adopted as well. And I think it, it has worked tremendously well is that, I'll, you know, I'll have playing time conversations with parents i'm totally i'm fine with it and explaining it to them but i the the only requirement for me is that your kid's going to be part of that discussion and he's going to be there with us at the same time at the meeting table yep and that's the best way to approach it because a lot of times the parents want to do it simply because you know the parent might be embarrassed that the kid's not playing and their best friend that they hang out with on weekend is a starter and, and having success and you know, they just want to see their son be successful. And, you know, you can't blame them. They're advocating for their son. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, they, they just want what's best. But sometimes the parents have blinders. And, um, 
It was actually at Hardingen where I had so many players and, and the making decisions was so tight. That's where I'd finally developed my player evaluation form. And uh, when I had to choose one player over another, I'd pull out that form and I'd, I'd show time in the 60, velocity of the throw from third base to first base. If they're an outfielder, how far they threw from the outfield to home plate, you know, just like j- just all those statistics. And I proved to them, you know, um, I would show them parent their son's data. And then I would cover up the names of the other players and say, look, this is where your son matches up. He's the sixth outfielder as far as distance throws and speed. So therefore he's a, he's not starting. There's only three outfielders. And once you show them the data, it, it kind of makes sense to them. When that player evaluation form came about, was it something that you, it took you a while to figure out in your career? Or was that something that you've had from early on? No, uh, at Raymondville and Rio Hondo, we only had like 15 players and, you know, the judgment was pretty simple, but it was at Harlingen where we had, you know, 60 kids, uh, you know, 20 of them were pretty good. And, you know, we had to make some decisions and it was my, after my first year of being questioned by parents, why is so-and-so starting? And, you know, is, uh, even with the son in the meeting, I, I just felt I needed more data. I needed more like, like a teacher. I needed to have something concrete, uh, something objective that I can show to them. And, uh, that's where I started doing research on college tryout times, high school tryout times, and just formulated that little sheet. And uh, from that sheet, it goes to a spreadsheet, and then we start sorting the papers out, and there it goes. So, And uh, as coaches, uh, sometimes it's an eye-opener, too, because we would never put the name of the player on the score sheet. We just put their, their number, their like registration number. And every now and then you're, you, you have an eye opener, like, wow, this kid's a sleeper. I never knew he threw this hard. Mm. Uh, I never, maybe because his attitude or his grades were not where you thought they should be. And you, you kind of put them off to the side a little bit. So, you know, every now and then you get a sleeper that you find out and you start working with them and good things happen. Well, that's, I mean, that, that's a really good point because a lot of times we think of those sheets, informational sheets, things like that, where you're kind of almost holding them not only to help you, you know, make tryout decisions and things like that, but like you'd mentioned earlier, to, to have kind of as a data point, if there ever is a discussion that you need to have with a mm-hmm. parent. Uh, but yeah, there's some good times where like you get, you, you learn some things about a kid that maybe didn't think about before. Uh, we've certainly had cases like that too. And those are always really fun ones. Yeah, you, you, I mean, he, he's uh, usually it's a non-assuming kid. He, he doesn't fill out his uniform just right. And, you know, all these uh, visual things that you want your players to look like. And, you know, he goes through the drills. He, he's just very quiet and unassuming. And then you look at that data and it's like, wow, he's just as good as that other kid. And, you know, he's he's going to be a quality player. And, and uh, you just it's, it's just good to see him grow. It's also good to see those, uh, you know, those JVers and freshman players, you know, progress, you know, by their senior year, they're throwing faster, they're running faster, they're doing things better. So, you, you know, you're you're developing their athletic ability. They're, you're just not wasting their time. That's yeah, cool, too, because it keeps uh, kind of keeps us as coaches honest and it gives you a chance to kind of object, you know, objectively look at what kind of practice models and training that you're using with kids because obviously if you know you're talking if you're seeing a freshman come in you keep data on him and then by a senior year if he's barely improved um, it gives you a chance to reflect and see 
how much how much of that was our training, how much of it was the player itself, other things mm-hmm. that could go into it as well. Yeah, um, you know what? Speaking of that, there's another thing that I used to look at was uh, the uh, lifting of the weights in the weight room program. Uh, you know, we, we lifted uh, twice a week in the fall, and I had a third lift of an open gym. And uh, it, it was nice to see that the kids who put in that extra lift actually had more gains in velocity and speed. I mean, not drastic, but it's just enough where as a coach, you can tell the team, look, look at these numbers. These numbers on the right show the players that got the third lift. These numbers on the left are the ones that didn't get the third lift. And it's just minor, you know, minor weight gains, but it just proves that if they put in the extra work, they're going to get better. That's a big that's a big part too. Uh, there's a, so many coaches who talk about the weight room and how important the weight room is and even incremental gains can have like huge effects. Um, you know obviously yeah. within baseball we we get really we get really deep down into mechanics and sometimes it even it even holds us back sometimes where it's just uh, it, just getting stronger can help a kid out a ton too whereas a lot of times we're so overly focused on mechanics of like a swing um, mm-hmm. that we're, we're low hanging fruit. That's just sitting there is just getting stronger, getting faster, getting yeah. bigger. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's really when I uh, spent those eight years at Hardingen, I started to you know do a lot of studying of, you know, uh, every, uh, fall, I always have a little project of mine, you know, that, uh, this fall I'm going to study, you know, pitching and hitting the next fall. I'm going to study strength conditioning and, and just develop it. And, you know, it's just uh, everybody in big colleges and high schools now are lifting weights. I mean, that's uh, it used to be a, a taboo thing to do earlier in my career, but now everybody's doing it. And uh, you don't lift weights to become a bodybuilder. You just lift weights to get functional movement. You know, we're not trying to bench press a house and squat an elephant. We just want to be stronger today than we were yesterday and, and just keep your body healthy. And it, at the same time, the, the kids' uh, self-confidence increases because they, they walk around with a little bit different swagger when they feel strong and feel fast. And it's a, I'll take, you know, any type of uh, positive reinforcement I'll take and, you know, utilize it. And, you know, it's, it's just good for the high school player to lift weights. It is. I want to kind of turn the discussion a little bit to um, another part that I know – Quite a few coaches in Texas. It's, it's a little bit more of a struggle than it is in some in some states because I know in Texas there's kind of a, a more or less a requirement that to be a coach you need to be a teacher essentially, and so um, that can put a strain on finding and hiring and keeping good assistant coaches. So you mentioned earlier, you know, obviously Texas football is the one that pays the bills more, and so as a baseball coach in Texas where you spend all of your time. Um, what was it like trying to to find and hire assistant coaches throughout the various communities you were in? The places I went weren't baseball powerhouses. There were always the jobs that were just open and no one really wanted. Um, and basically, my assistants were the ones that were already there. There were uh, men that knew a little baseball, maybe coached some baseball, maybe played some baseball. Uh, and they were all good men. They did uh, exactly what I asked them to do. But they, they weren't, you know, baseball coaches, if you know what I mean. Uh, they, they were just good men. They were good assistants. Uh, they can hit fungo. They can set up a machine. I mean, and I would, you know, like, like fo- football coaches, coach the coaches, I would do the same thing in baseball. 
we'd always have a couple of weekends before the season and we'd meet up for a couple of hours at someone's house and, and just, just talk baseball a little bit, what I expected out of a swing, you know, what I expected out of defensive play. And, uh, you know, they, 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 for what they were given the responsibility for, they did a great job. Uh, and I didn't overwhelm them. Like, you know, one guy, he was my middle infield coach. And when I would visit with him, we'd go over all the intricacies of middle infield play. And if he could knock that out for me and hit fungo, we're, we're on the right track. The other guy was my outfield coach. If And I taught him all the intricacies of outfield play. And if he can do that, you know, that's what uh, that's all I expected out of him. Um, and sometimes we have to adapt, you know, uh, sad to say, but sometimes I put my weaker coach in the outfield and uh, I had one guy who cannot hit fungo to uh, to save his life. I mean, it was extremely difficult for him. So that's when I started using the uh, pitching machine. We purchased a Hummer. We put it out there and we'd set up cones for the for the players to stand and the ball would always land in the middle of those cones. So the kids were always practicing whatever cone they were at. They went at a different angle. So if you can imagine a clock, we'd always have cones at 12, 3, 6, and 9. So if you're at 12, they're running towards the ball. If you're at 3, the ball's to your right. If you're at 6, you're going ball over your head. And if you're at 9, the ball's going to your left. And uh, we just worked on that stuff. And it's not about having the best coaches. It's just about having good men. They're going to do what you ask them to do and give it their best. And, and that's all we can ask for. Now, if you get to a powerhouse that has a tremendous tradition, uh, that's where the head coach has more leeway to hire who he wants uh, and, and get who he wants. The, you know, the head, the head baseball coach is more like a head football coach in those cities. But uh, I wasn't as fortunate. <laughs> I think it seems like you did okay, even with the circumstances that you had. Yeah, you just got to, you know, blessed with good kids, good parents, and, and great men to work with, and a little bit of luck on our side. We we had some fun, and uh, it, it was neat seeing the seeing the coaches get better. Uh, you know, usually my the offensive coordinator or the defensive coordinator were my assistant coaches, so their mind's always about football. And they'd come to baseball practice and I'd have my closing arguments and not arguments, my closing statements. And before the kids left the dugout, the, the coaches were saying, Hey, go get your lift in. Don't forget to go get your football lift in. And, uh, you know, I let that go for a couple of days. And I finally say, Hey man, uh, when we're at the baseball field, let's just talk baseball. <laughs> and, uh, you know, let's uh, when y'all leave the field and you close the gate behind you, then you can remind them about you know football. Football is important. There's no doubt about it. But you know, let let's focus on baseball. And that little change of attitude was huge for us, especially at Harlingen. Uh, and and those kids worked hard. I mean, if they played football, baseball, those kids were in the weight room by six thirty in the morning to get their football lift in. Then they go through school, go through football class. And then they wouldn't get to baseball practice till like 4.15. So I would actually have to organize two practices. One for my baseball class that started at 3. I had to uh, find something that we can get better at in that hour and a half before the rest of the players came out. So it was in that hour and a half that we usually did our, our pickoffs. 
because uh, I was really, really lucky that the pitching staff and the catchers were in the baseball class. So we were able to use our PFPs. We were able to do some pickoffs, some rundowns, uh, throw bullpen, et cetera, take a little break. And then at 4.30, we kick it up again when everybody else got out there. So it was uh, a lot of logistics, a lot of planning, but uh, we, we found a way to get it done. That's really smart. And that really fortunate that they ended up in the baseball class too. the pitchers and oh, catchers. Yeah. It makes it a, a really smooth, easy transition. And then you're not using up a lot of the, the time and you have everybody there to have to do stuff for pitchers and catchers and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. As you kind of, as you kind of look back at your coaching career, um, wanted to get into like any kind of cool special things that your program did. So just uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing anything in terms of maybe like a special senior night or recognition thing you did or some sort of opening ceremonies thing, or um, any in-season kind of cool celebratory thing, or team dinner, just anything that you did that you thought was pretty cool um, that other programs might be able to try to emulate or just kind of maybe change and make their own. Yeah, so uh, we always had Little League opening ceremonies on my field. Uh, the only place we didn't do it was Raymondville, but in Rio Hondo and Heart Engine, at uh, all schools there, we, we had opening ceremonies just to get the kids on the game field. Uh, it was a requirement for all the varsity players to be there with their jersey and blue jeans and to just uh, meet and greet. And the varsity players loved it because they felt like they were superstars. You know, those little kids, five, six, seven years old, looking up at them, taking pictures with them, signing baseballs. <laughs> you know, it was a pretty neat deal. Um, the other neat deal we had is uh, when we went to out-of-town tournaments and spending the night, uh, we'd always, besides the team meal, we'd always find time to uh, go bowling or we'd go to a movie. And uh, when I'd go to these out-of-town tournaments, I'd always talk with the head coach, hey, you know, can you give us a, an early game uh, Friday morning? And then uh, that way I can have Friday afternoon off to have team bonding. And yeah. they always worked it out for us. So that, that was something neat with, that we did. Uh, parents' night, always had a parents' night. Uh, you you got to recognize them for uh, their support. Uh, we always had a booster club, always had banquets. Sometimes it's by ourselves, and sometimes it's with all sports, but we always had some type of recognition at the end. Fundraising. This year, I loved fundraising where I didn't have to uh, have any inventory. Yeah. So we would, do, we, <laughs> we would do the lift-a-thon where, you know, the kids would see how much weight they can lift and, and they would get pledges from a penny to five cents to whatever. Uh, and that was easy money. You know, we, we'd rack in sometimes over a thousand dollars. We're not going to get rich off these fundraisers, but it's just free money. Uh, we've also done the uh, send letters to your relatives asking for money. And one of the, the best things, uh, neat little tricks or whatever, is that if, if every varsity player had to raise $300 so they can have their bat bag, their helmet, et cetera. I would provide a fundraiser to them and they had some choices. One, they can sell whatever cookies or candy, or whatever we're going to sell to raise the $300. Two, their parents can write a check for $300 and call it even. Or three, they can go seek donations from anybody. So the basically the bottom line, if, they had to raise 300. I don't care how they got it. As long as they had their $300, they were cleared and they got their stuff when the season started. So that, you know, it's, it's a way to help 
the the kids that don't have as much as much money to find a way to get it, and the kids that are able to purchase make a purchase and save their parents a lot of time. So um, trying to think what else we did that was pretty unique. Oh, I used to get uh, opening ceremonies for our season, the first home opening game. I'd have the superintendent, the AD, or the principal throw out the first ball. We had the ROTC out there. We had um, uh, one year we had uh, a really good trumpet player. He came out and played the Star Spangled Banner on his trumpet for us. So, uh, you know, just, I would anything and everything to get more people into the stands. You know, that that's basically what we did. Yeah, can you? I love all of it, and it, it's great. And what you said there makes is perfect. Anything you can do to get people to the uh, to the game is awesome. Um, going back, you mentioned Parents Night. What type of stuff did you do at Parents Night? Well, the uh, the fathers or the male figure in the family were allowed to wear the uh, opposite game jersey or any game jersey we had. Uh, the mothers were given were given a rose. We had a photographer at home plate. And uh, we'd have, it was actually during player introductions. Um, some of the visiting coaches didn't like it too much, but others say, yeah, man, whatever you want to do, just let you know. So we would adjust pregame and I always let the visiting coach know, hey, look, man, tonight's going to be parents night. We're going to start pregame early, just so you know. And then you're going to have like a, a 15, 20 minute dead time before the game. And, you know, if you let the opposing coach know, it turns out perfect. Let the umpires know yeah. ahead of time so that they're not caught off guard. Uh, but, uh, you know, we introduced the player. The dad's wearing the jersey. The mom's handed a rose. They walk down the baseline. They uh, take a picture behind home plate. And then they walk off to the other baseline. And then when they're all done, they would all go and make a half circle around pitcher's mound. And then we take a big uh, – what I call the family program picture. So you got the parents, the players, and the coaches all in, you know, one picture. So uh, that, that was neat. It's a, it's a lot of great memories. And, uh, you know, it's just good for the kids. And sometimes a coach had to step in for a parent that couldn't be there. And uh, that, that's where you realize that there's some things more important than baseball because you, you got that little kid looking around and mom, mom or dad didn't show up and you got to ask a coach to step in. And uh, it's it's kind of sad, but those things happen. But, you know, you do the very best to, to make that kid feel comfortable. Yeah, it's it's sad. But like you said, I think it's good for the kid because now you have a, all of a sudden, uh, I don't know, a memory for him that he can, even though it's it, there's it's bittersweet. But, you you know, he's got a memory of a coach now stepping in and that probably helps build that mm -hmm. relationship up with that coach and with the program and gives him, you know, good memories of, of his time inside of Harlan Jen or, or whatever program he's in right. and across the country. Yep. So. Uh, you know, it works out well. I think you know, we've done uh, something similar for like Mother's Night and it, kind of the same thing. We'll have, you know, if we need someone to step in, we can have someone step in and, and make it happen. It doesn't have to be someone's, you know, mom necessarily. But um, I think overall, those are awesome. And like you mentioned, that we've, we've done a couple too. And uh, same thing, we've never had an opposing coach have a problem with it as long as we've let them know beforehand. They're just, hey, just yep. so you know, this is going to be happening. And, and they adjust and everything works out fine. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, being communication It's because I've shown up to fields and, hey, coach, we've got parents night. I said, well, dude, I'm 20 minutes earlier than I needed to be, you know, or 20 <laughs> right. minutes late or something. It's like, so, but you just move on. Baseball coaches, we're easy going. We'll find a way. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're used to games getting canceled at the last second or postponed in the middle of the game with water. So uh, we're we're a flexible crew. Um, So I wanted to get into kind of what you do now. So uh, there's obviously two routes for it. So let's let's go down the first route, which is um, at your at your professional level, your day job, so to speak. Um, You're you're out of coaching per se in terms of being on a field with kids. Um, So what is your role now? Right now, I am the campus behavioral coordinator at a uh, San Antonio, Texas high school. And um, it's been a very eventful three weeks. Uh, <laughs> but uh, things are actually starting to slow down now. Uh, it's, uh, I, I love my new position. Uh, I didn't think I would uh, feel like I could make an impact on kids being there. But after three weeks, we're in the tie. Uh, I think I have a more of an impact on the kids that really need some redirection. Um, it, it's, it, it's a different thing, but the best part of all, and my wife is so happy, is that I'm home by 530 now. That, that's yeah. the best thing. Uh, yeah, I had a first, a good change. It is. And I had a, my very first Labor Day weekend in 30 years. I uh, didn't know what to do with myself. I had three days off, and it was nice, but... As a behavior coordinator, uh, you know, we actually, because of the COVID situation, we have freshmen that have never been on a high school campus ever. And we also have sophomores who have spent very little time on campus. So, you know, roughly 50% of our students are new to the campus itself and to the routines and expectations. And, you know, uh, right now we're facing a lot of dress code and tardy issues. Um, and, and dress code, you know, you can't blame the kids because that's what they buy at the stores. But, you know, our schools uh, is with the times, but we're still yet conservative, you know. So uh, they got to dress appropriately. And, and tardies, the kids have lost all sense of time. I mean, our, our tardies are out the roof. So uh, right now we're trying to implement some uh, some plans and some uh, some goals for the kids just to get them to class on time. You know, right now I work on a campus of about 1,700, and uh, there's about 100 of those kids that uh, ensure that I have a job. You know, they keep me on my toes. <laughs> y- you you want to complain, God, these 100 kids won't get to class on time, and, you know, these 20 kids won't pick up their pants, and these five girls keep wearing, you know, uh, these holes all over their pants. And But without those kids, I don't have a job. There's no need for discipline. So, you know, it, it comes, it's part of the territory. Yeah, well, one thing I've noticed over over time is that, um, yeah, I'll, the, the, that let's use those hundred kids you're mentioning. Those hundred kids who tend to have a, a few more issues with with having to go visit you down in your office, maybe um, in, in my school and schools I've been at. Um, usually, by the time graduation comes around, um, the, the, those hundred kids, so to speak, have a really good relationship with you or whoever's in that role. So the vice principal of behavior, the mm-hmm. dean of students or behavior specialist, whatever people mm-hmm. call them at, at different places. But um, right. it's really cool to see because, you know, if you see this kid over four years and a lot of a lot of times the kid that's coming to you all the time has, um, you know, a lot of times they have issues at home and things like that. And so uh, just over time, uh, you become kind of this person's trusted person basically they're trusted adult um so it's kind of a cool deal yeah uh, you know my main thing and and what uh my discipline plan is reformative discipline you know don't just you know bring the kid in and and process them 
You know, okay, you got ISS, you got lunch detention, you know, sit down with the kid. Okay, why are you tardy? What can we do to get you here earlier? What can you do to walk faster? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just trying to put it on the kid to, to get him to think, you know, they, they, they just want to go and they roam like cattle in the hallway. You know, it's just going through the halls and with, with no goals in mind. And, and some, you know, after one or two visits, they catch on. But after that, then you got to start doing the lunch detentions and the, the parent phone calls. And those parent phone calls are pretty unique. You know, I, the kids always talking to the parent on speaker. And uh, sometimes uh, the parent's real nonchalant. Okay, I'll talk to him at home. And other times that kid's getting a tongue lashing right there on the phone. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And uh, <laughs> after that. After that tongue lashing, it's usually the last time I, I see the kid in my office. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's like you said, it's bittersweet. And I've talked to some of the counselors that I work with right now about these uh, high maintenance students that I have. And they said, and like you said, says, sir, just, just keep working with them. They're going to change, believe in the system, believe in what you're doing. And they tell me about their success stories. So, you know, like, like you said, the kids just need some guidance, someone to believe in them, someone to talk to. And, uh, you know, that's what we're there for. I think it's a, a pretty natural move for a coach to end up taking if that's something that they want to do is because ultimately that is what you're doing. Like that's what coaching is ultimately too. at its core is just trying to help kids reach, uh, reach goals that they might not even know that they have for themselves yet and making sure that they're in a good position when they leave high school and, uh, that's the same whether they're you know playing baseball or football for you or if they're just you know someone who's been sent to you because they were tardy or because they're like you know late to something else or whatever yeah yeah it's uh the way uh after a week in the seat i've kind of realized that being a principal is just like being a coach except the team is bigger mm-hmm. there's there's more variables and personalities and not only do you have team rules you got state and federal rules you got to follow you know, some kids can be disciplined one way and some kids cannot because of their uh, disability. They got to be treated a different way. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of uh, legal issues that that principals got to be careful with. But overall, it's just a big to me, it's just a big team and I just got to manage it. And then going into this other role. So you've you're not actively a high school baseball or football coach, so to speak, but you're still finding a way to kind of stay connected to it. Yeah. Um, it was during COVID. I was sitting at home bored to death and uh, <laughs> I didn't have any practice plans to do at that time. I was still coaching because uh, this is my first year as an admin. Uh, there's no practice plans, no organizations to do nothing. So I started, well, you know, let's, let's look at making a blog. So that started off my, my trip down the rabbit hole. And now I have a, a blog uh, called Kretz files, K R E T Z files.com. And, and what I'm doing is slowly, but surely with the spare time I have, I, I go through my USB drives, my hard drives, and I'm formatting all the, all the notes I have from 30 years of coaching. And I'm putting it up on blogs and um, you know, the, the, just stuff to uh, conf- to confirm what other coaches are doing, uh, to share my experiences, to maybe throw a new idea out there. You know, maybe because we all go to clinics, we're all searching for the next best thing. 
And I can remember during my career, I would always search high school baseball practice. And, there, you know, it take you to a college or take you to a little league idea. And, you know, baseball is baseball. All those things are pretty much the same. But my focus is on the high school baseball coach and what I did over my career that worked for me. And I just want to share it with people. And right now we have a couple of ebooks uh, up on the website and we have a couple of blogs on the uh, blog post on the website. So, you know, my main goal is to uh, help a young coach, help a veteran coach. Uh, maybe a coach is real strong in the field, but not strong in the organizational aspect of it. They don't have a good assistant to help them out. Well, you know, within time, my website is going to provide all the resources that any high school head coach would need. Uh, it takes longer than I thought it would, uh, yes. you know, to, to, to edit, to get the right picture, to get the right writing, to get the right SEO. Oh man, it's, it's, if you want to do it right, it takes time. And, uh, I'm doing my very best to get one blog post a week. Sometimes I don't get it because of family or other stuff. So it's, it's a little, it's a, it's a side hustle yet. It's a hobby. And it's, it's nothing really pressing, but uh, I enjoy getting it out and sharing it with people. I was in the similar boat. That's how this was all born. I was, it was during COVID and it was a couple months in and I had listened to, you know, all the podcasts I normally listen to, obviously, as a baseball coach, I was listening to, you know, Head of the Curve and then the ABCA podcast and then Dugout Chatter and through all of them, I was just thirsting for like you're talking about for high school specific content. Yep, And, you know, all those guys would usually have a high school coach on every once in a while. And I love those episodes because as high school coaches, we're dealing with, like you said, a lot of similar things, but also it's, it's a very different environment too, um, mm-hmm. than what a you know, coach is able to do at the college level versus what I am able to do at the high school level. They're very different. And so then it was very similar for me. I just wanted to play, I wanted to connect with other high school coaches. And so I, that's kind of where this was born. And so I think COVID in a lot of respects opened up a lot of doors for a lot of people to maybe dive into some other things. And um, so, you know, as, as you've been going through your files and, and going through your hard drives and USB things, and just as you've been reflecting on it, um, what's, as you kind of dove in, what's one of the biggest, like, I don't know, mistakes maybe you've you've thought of as you reflect on your career that maybe you made at one point um, at, at any of your coaching stops that you learned from? Well, the, the, the biggest mistake is to assume the kid knows what you want him to do. That's the biggest thing. You know, you, you get the first day of practice, young coach. All right, let's turn two. And you hit the ground ball and the, the feet aren't right. The glove's not up. The feet are slow. Uh, the throwing arm pattern's too long. It's and But the kid didn't know. And you can get frustrated or you can go coach the kid. So once I figured that out, now the kids say, coach, you talk too much. And so, well, I, I want to make, you know, we're going to talk a whole lot in the fall. So when we get to the spring, we just get a whole lot of reps. You know, it's, it's all about feet, hands, and, and throwing. You know, it's, uh, everything starts with the feet. And I've had assistant coaches, how do you see that all? Well, it's just the, the more you watch it, just like anything else, the more you watch it in person, everything slows down for you as a, as a coach. And you can see the feet, the body, the hands, the eyes, the arms, you know, you can't see it all, but, but you can get the big picture of it. But that's a, that's the most, uh, that's the number one thing on my list that I learned is never assume the kids know. I mean, 
pickoffs at first. You know, it's, it's different ways to doing it. And uh, everybody needs to be taught. I, in fact, I saw one thing on, uh, I think it was on Twitter, because I follow a bunch of coaches. He had a pitch out. And the catcher actually stood up, walked in front of home plate for the pitch out. No. And he got <laughs> hit by the batter who swung. So, one, the catcher messed up because he stood in front of home plate. Two, the pitcher messed up because it was a pitch out and he threw it right over home plate. And, you know, his catcher got got nailed in the back. So, you, you know, you just can't assume anything. Yeah, it's a it's a really good point. It's something that for me, I, I came to realize, um, especially so this past spring. So after, you know, after 2020, when we didn't get to play baseball, um, then this past spring, like you mentioned in regards to like your kids in high school um, walking about and knowing how to do things. Same thing on the baseball field. Um, you know, we had sophomores who hadn't played baseball since eighth grade. By that point, we had freshmen mm-hmm. coming in who hadn't played baseball since they were seventh graders. And it was never more apparent to me that, wow, I need to really slow down and really make sure I'm teaching things and expectations, simple things, even like how to round second base. And like, it's Mm -hmm. just, there's so much that I used to take for granted that now I'm like, wow, I really need to make sure I'm slowing down and like actually teaching and explaining these things. Yep. Just slow down, teach it. And, uh, you know, if you, if you teach it right the first time, then the rest of the time it's just tweaking and adjusting on the run. But, uh, yeah, I mean, just playing catch. I mean, that's an adventure in itself sometimes, depending on where you're at. When you're diving into organizing all of these files and trying to put together all the, you know, the drills that you did over your career and the, the practice plans and the templates and, and just everything you've gone through, um, when you're looking percentage-wise, how much of it, if you were going to start, you know, if you were going to be a, a high school coach, coaching baseball head coach this year of all the stuff you've kind of been through um how much of it would you not use anymore wow um i've kind of condensed everything throughout the years um i I would basically like my later years of my career i'd practice baseball like football coaches do football you get warm up you get your individual time you get your group time you get your team time and then you know, in baseball, you got to have your batting time, base running, et cetera. But uh, you can go to all these sites all over the place and they got, you know, get your 71 infield drills, you know, get your 101 batting drills. And like, no, that that's, uh, I used to be that guy. I used to have like drill after drill and, and you finally realize it's, it's not about the drill. It's it's boiled down. I read it somewhere. The five objectives of baseball. If you can get your team to do the five objectives, throw quality strikes, play high level catch, put the ball in play, run to bases aggressively and intelligently and control all situations. That's baseball. That's it. You know, drill after drill. I've kind of summarized my entire career into three defensive drills I called it drill series one, two, and three on my website, which is individual, group, and team. Uh, I've got a nice little inter-squad drill that really gets the team into game situations. Uh, and everything that's in the, the, the program manual that I created, uh, you know, that's all I would do. It's throw the strikes, play catch, put the ball in play, run the bases smart, and control the situations. And uh, – 
Yeah, so getting back to your question, I would probably eliminate 60% of all the stuff uh, that, that's in my notebooks and files and stuff like that because it, it's just uh, neat little gadgets. Now, let me backtrack. Of the 60% of the stuff, you can tweak it to help that one kid that really just isn't grasping the main concept. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it can help them. But, you know, b- baseball, I've created uh, what I believe in are just routines because in sports psychology, the more routine something is, uh, the more the kid has confidence in and the better, the more confidence he has, the better his performance. Uh, and that's just what I believe as I finished off my career and it was pretty fru- fruitful for me. Well, I was going to say, you know, you've, you've had a, you had a long career as a coach and you, you helped really turn a couple programs around and especially going back to the, you know, humble, modest start that you had with a, a barbed wire fence and a, a little league backstop. And it's just, it's, yep. it's pretty cool to hear because it'd be easy. It'd be easy for you to have gone back to that first version of yourself and been like, well, this is just, this is it. I'm, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And obviously you, you, you stayed with it and it's been a, it's been a really cool career that you've been able to have. And then to, to now have the chance to impact kids in a different way at the same time, helping coaches is, it's really cool. So, um, you know, before I, before I let you go, I just want to hand the mic over to you one more time. And if there's anything, I don't know that we missed or that, you, you know, you might think is impactful for coaches or anything whatsoever. Just, um, here's your, here's your chance. Yeah. Well, um, as, as a baseball coach and teacher and administrator, it's all about the kids, you know, put the kids first, get to know them, build some relationships with them. And, uh, you'd be surprised just by building a relationship and, and talk to the kid about non-sports related stuff. Hey, how's your family? How's your dog? Find something that they're interested in outside of school. Uh, build that relationship with them and, and they will start doing good things for you. Uh, the other thing as a coach, always be prepared. And sports psychology is so huge right now. And like I mentioned earlier, if you can build routines into your program where the kid knows what to do before they ever get to the field, uh, that just builds more confidence in them. And, you know, coach, I, you know, the word coach is so broad. I would say you got you have to teach the game of baseball at practice. And then you can coach the game of baseball on game day. You got to teach it at practice and you can coach on game day. And, uh, you know, make sure you have clear expectations for your assistant coaches and let them know what you expect out of them. Support the parents as they support you. Don't, don't be uh, afraid to meet with them and um, just treat everybody with respect and humility and just do the best of your God-given ability to, to make a difference in that kid's life. Dude, Ron, you're the man. I appreciate you so much for coming on the show and and spending some time with me here. I wish you the best of luck as you deal with tardies and dress codes and hopefully (laughs) those kids start hitting their stride here pretty soon with you. Yes, sir. I hope so too. But, uh, you know, one last thing, if you're looking for a high school baseball coach resource uh, beside your podcast, uh, head over to kretzfiles.com and see if there's anything I can help you with. If there's something there that's that you want, you know, shoot me an email and I'm sure I have it somewhere. Absolutely. We'll shoot that down in the, in the show notes as well. So people can click on it. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks, Ron. All right, sir. Once again, a conversation turning to our common theme across 48 episodes, relationships. 
What a great hour I had hanging out with Ron Kretz. If you aren't signed up for the weekly newsletter yet, or if you haven't picked up some High School Coaches Club stickers, you should definitely do so. Head on over to highschoolcoachesclub.com to get started. Don't forget to leave a rating or maybe a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And most importantly, if you have found any value at all from this episode or any previous episode, please share this on social media to your followers via email to your fellow coaches or through the old-fashioned word of mouth. It doesn't matter how you do it. Just find a way to bring a few more listeners in who might benefit. That's how we all get better, and that's how we grow the club. Huge fist bump to Ron Kretz for jumping on the call with me, and thanks again to Netting Pros and Driveline Plus for sponsoring the episode and to you for clicking that play button. If you have any recommendations for people who should be guests on the show, be sure to reach out to me, even if that recommendation is you. Follow the club on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at HS Coaches Club. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Max Price and can reach me via email, max at highschoolcoachesclub.com. All right, that's it. That's all I got. You are awesome. You matter. Thanks for all you do. And as Coach Lee would say, loving you.